Hello, everyone. Welcome to our third Europe After Corona Talk, a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate, a Jean Monnet sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Ravallen. I'm a journalist based in Brussels. And today we will be talking about how the current crisis is affecting Europe's labor market. Let me first introduce you to the participants. Today's guest editor will be Raymond Torres, director of Funcas Europe. How are you doing today, Raymond? Fine, thank you, Carlos. Thank you for joining us and helping us prepare today's conversation. Um, we have also with us Laszlo Andor, Secretary General of FEPS, that is the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, and he's also a former Commissioner for Employment, Social Affairs and Inclusion. Thanks for joining us, Laszlo. Thanks very much for calling. There is also a great political scientist joining us today, and that is Samandine Crespi, Associate Professor in Political Science in Sevipol Institut des Etudes Européennes, Université Libre de Bruxelles. How are you, Amandine? Thanks for joining. I'm good, thank you. It's a pleasure. Great. So now that we're done with presentations, I want to first ask you about the impact of COVID-19 on the European labor market. Uh, lockdown measures across the globe are having devastating consequences on labor markets, affecting around 81% of the world's workforce, according to the International Labor Organization. Raymond, what do we know at this stage in terms of the impact of COVID-19? The impact of uh, COVID-19 is uh, much worse than, than actually we thought only a few days ago. Uh, I would say it's uh, without precedent vis-a-vis -vis any of the previous crises or recessions that the world economy or the European economy for that matter faced uh, in, in peaceful times since, uh, since the Second World War. Uh, the most immediate impact is a wave of enterprise closures. And after all, uh, the business sector is the employer of about 80% of the workforce. Uh, many firms are facing a liquidity crisis. They are unable to face uh, the payment system, the bills, uh, the payment of wages, and so on. And they, because, of course, uh, in a lockdown situation, they have very little income available with, of course, some exception. This, as a result, leads to uh, a major decline in the demand for labor. And so there is, uh, uh, luckily, uh, short-time work arrangements, in other words, the possibility to maintain the employment relationship, uh, and therefore reduce a little bit recourse to uh, absolute layoffs of people. But still, there are people who, who are laid off, those that cannot be recruited, especially young people, uh, and many, many on short-term work time. And finally, there is, uh, in terms of the labor market, there is a major impact on the incomes of people because, of course, uh, labor incomes decline. The uh, revenues of on-account workers, temporary workers, and those who are on the margins of the labor market are also very significantly affected. And so it's a triple crisis, uh, uh, an economic crisis in the sense of enterprise closures, a crisis in terms of job losses or a reduction of labor demand and then a, a loss of incomes of people. Okay. So, uh, Laszlo, when we look back and we see the euro crisis, which is the, it's, it's a reference to have a look at crisis. It was only 10 years ago. Do you think this, this crisis is worse in terms of how it's affecting and in terms of how it's going to affect the labor market? Yes, I think um, we can make this comparison. It can be useful. 
but first of all, we have to highlight the differences, uh, mainly that um, the so-called Eurozone crisis was uh, um, largely asymmetric. Uh, there were quite a few countries um, suffering significant losses in terms of uh, GDP, uh, with rising um, unemployment, um, uh, skyrocketing youth unemployment levels, while some other parts of the European Union, uh, the so-called north of the euro area, with countries like Germany, Austria or the Netherlands, uh, did not suffer uh, that much. And uh, this had um, various uh, uh, reasons which can be explained, partly because of the imbalances inherent inside um, the Economic and Monetary uh, Union, uh, but also because uh, the rest of the world was not suffering that much and there were still uh, strong centers of economic growth around the world. And those countries which were strong on experts managed to connect with those centers and come out of the recession relatively quickly and even at the time of the recession, maintain a stable or even reducing levels of unemployment. So there was, in a way, a kind of German employment miracle uh, in, uh, in, in that period. As compared to that, today's crisis is very symmetrical. Of course, um, the, the relative strength of um, uh, European countries is still uneven. But the coronavirus is hitting everybody. And there is no country that would be uh, shielded from this uh, uh, shock. So the economic, um, the, the, the labor market and the financial consequences are probably more evenly uh, spread uh, than uh, what we saw as the effects of the euro area crisis. Okay, um, and then maybe you want to, to, to react to that. Uh, do you agree with the fact that this, this crisis is is different for the number of reasons that Laszlo just mentioned. Yeah, it is different. Um, and to pick up on the on the theme of um, symmetry and asymmetry, um, there's one respect in which um, the impact of the pandemic is asymmetric is in terms of um, sectors activity. So major consequences that will ensue is the long term disruption for some economic sectors, um, think of, um, for instance, uh, the cultural sector uh, of the aviation sector, which will be hit long term. Um, the consequence will be that the demand for labor in those sector uh, sectors will remain low um, for a longer time, whereas um, there can be a shift of activity uh, in other sectors, think um, for instance, of um, shipment of products and online shopping and so on. So that's, that's one aspect. A second aspect I'd like to mention um, relates to working conditions. Um, and so here um, there's two interesting parallels to make with the previous um, crisis. Um, one is uh, that we need to make sure that this time around, um, the uh, increase in unemployment does not result in more deregulation of labor markets, in more precariousness, and so on. But then a major difference between the two crises is, of course, the sanitary and health 
peculiarity of the pandemic. Uh, with COVID-19, um, the unions will have a lot of work and very uh, key uh, job to do in making sure that all workers in all sectors uh, as they uh, go back to work physically, uh, will be protected, will be working in good and safe conditions. Um, and Raymond, I think maybe you can you can complement what Amandine said about the different sectors being uh, being affected uh, differently. So what what can what can we do with those that are employed in sectors that probably is going to take a while to see them uh, back to work? And it was mentioned the aviation sector, but probably there are other sectors that may, they may change forever. And, and therefore, we may need to have some people readapting and in terms of their, their skills and what, what they can contribute to society. Raymond, any thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, first of all, I would like to agree with uh, both Amandine and, and Laszlo in, in emphasizing the issue of uh, asymmetry uh, uh, for, for particular sectors, in other words, within countries in a way. And, and symmetry between them, between countries, in the sense that the pandemic has affected every every place in the world. And in terms of sectors, I would like to add what Amandine list that, uh, that Amandine was giving a, a couple of a couple of them, which I think are crucial. One has to do with the tourism, anything which has to do with tourism, which in fact is related to mobility. This is a crisis of mobility of people. People are locked down. And even when we get out of the lockdown, still we will not be able to move as freely and as much as was the case before. And so the tourism sector is very significantly hit and will continue to be uh, hit as we get out of, of the uh, lockdown measures. So well, uh, at least until the end of the year and I think, in, in my opinion, even next year. And another sector which is strongly affected is not the sector as such but it's an important element of the economy, small businesses. Because this is a liquidity uh, squeeze, uh, and, uh, and small businesses tend to have much less liquidity portions than in the case of, of big uh, enterprises. And so this adds to, to the dimension, these are big employers, especially in some countries. And finally, um, I also think that, uh, um, I mean, there is much less talk about that, but clearly one of the groups which is going to be uh, much more effective will be young people because they have to enter the labor market, a labor market where job creation will be minimal. And so when they leave education, they will face tremendous problems entering the labor market. So we also need to think about devices about that. In fact, uh, Raymond, I was going to ask Laszlo precisely about, about the younger people because they were uh, those uh, worstly affected uh, 10 years ago, especially in southern countries. So again, we're going to see uh, those those part of the population being affected the most by, by this uh, economic crisis? Well, um, um, maybe yes. Um, and the yes um, applies in case uh, the young generation, the so-called millennials in the last 10 years, when they uh, started to be employed, were more likely to be employed in so-called atypical jobs, the gig economy. This became very, very widespread. And um, this is a process we um, observed, of course, not only in Europe, but even more in the United States, that the net job creation since the last uh, uh, recession was mainly taking place in these types of atypical jobs where there is less uh, 
uh, employment security and less uh, social safety net attached uh, to uh, the employment. So this probably means that someone who was probably last in employment might be first in unemployment when the new recession comes. There is a strong um, uh, sectoral element uh, here. Of course, to some extent in the past crisis, there was a strong sectoral element when uh, the so-called pro-cyclical um, sectors like construction, to some extent the automotive sector, uh, because in a recession nobody buys a new car. Right? Uh, so the, the pro-cyclical sectors uh, went uh, down first and those employed in these sectors were hurt uh, much more uh, than others. And then perhaps there is an even stronger sectoral component here. Uh, Raymond was already pointing to uh, tourism and everything related to tourism and transport is now uh, suffering. And um, that does not necessarily mean uh, that um, uh, the age bias would be so strong, uh, but the sectoral uh, bias is definitely extremely rough. So we're seeing a number of uh, different national policy responses to combat the, uh, the pre preliminary effects of this uh, global pandemic uh, on employment. And I'd like to ask all three of you to assess how effective are these national mechanisms to fight unemployment. Uh, Raymond, what's your what's your take on this? Yes, I think uh, the I mean the, the the good thing, and it was it was mentioned by Laszlo, I think. Huh? is that countries are, are doing, uh, are trying to do, to uh, implement some of the policies that were successful at the time of the financial crisis. And I would say, in particular, Kurzarbeit, in other words, short-time work arrangements, are very much on vogue throughout Europe. Everybody is doing its own version of it. So I think that's, I mean, it has to be said, that's a, po a positive point, because it, it certainly uh, reduces the, the, attenuates a little bit the impact of the crisis on uh, open unemployment. However, there are three, as I said, there are three very important limitations, three very important problems. One of them is that the, because it's a liquidity crisis, the uh, liquidity schemes which are implemented by, by countries are not necessarily functioning very well. For example, in the case of Spain, uh, just in 15 days uh, during the month of March, in my opinion, it will be much worse this month of April, about 7% of all of, of businesses uh, were, uh, went bust, disappeared, they were bankrupt. So it shows that the system which is being scaled up in most countries to provide liquidity to firms is not necessarily working to the full extent. The second problem is more, more systemic, is the problem of funding. Because even though countries are, are all trying to do more or less the same thing, they don't necessarily have the same means. And so they have deep holes in their budgets. The markets are not necessarily ready to fund pro-employment measures. They are ready to do so, but at different costs. Risk premium have increased quite significantly. And then the, the, an associated and third problem is that there is a very significant risk of cross-country divergence as a result of the latter problem, which is the funding problem, and uh, which in a way puts the very existence of the euro at risk. So. I think we, we, just in sum, you know, the way I see it, 
countries are moving in the right direction, but some of them are facing very significant constraints to the effectiveness of their policies and to the point that, in a way, we, we may be reaching some of the limits of the euro project. So, so Laszlo, are, are these national responses that, that we are seeing, uh, are they effective? Do they make sense? Well, there has to be some effectiveness everywhere, but what I would like to highlight is that in every single case, of course, we can say that the measures are coming a little bit late, but no government can compete with the speed of uh, this crisis. Why? Because um, the reaction of the markets is much, uh, much faster and um, the, the pandemic just, uh, you know, engulfed uh, the world very, very, very quickly in the months of uh, uh, March. So um, when, it, uh, when the measures come late, you cannot say that, uh, you know, we are a, a one big society and let's just pretend that this is an extended weekend and everybody goes home and just like we wouldn't close the enterprise for Saturday and Sunday, we will not close the enterprises uh, for this longer uh, period simply because the market is making an effect and um, uh, in a sectoral basis or otherwise, the safety net for the enterprises uh, cannot be extended so quickly. So the decisions are already taken, the bankruptcy uh, procedures are filed, and uh, a lot of people have been dismissed or discontinued from uh, employment uh, already by the time the various national governments would be analysing the situation or rolling out uh, the measures that would mitigate uh, the effect. So practically every measure is uh, exposed, but even in this case, they have to try their utmost uh, to, uh, to, to keep um, enterprises on their feet and, um, and, and, and preserve jobs as much as possible. Amandine, any thoughts on that? How are member states coping in terms of uh, uh, fighting the first effects of, uh, of unemployment? Um, I was saying that um, the uh, emphasis that was put in all European countries uh, on short-term work schemes uh, was right, and in that sense, there was a specific European approach because we see that in the US, where you don't have these kind of schemes, the, the number of people who lost their job uh, is uh, is much much more important uh, than in Europe. But then uh, I would uh, agree. Uh, with my colleagues that, of course, all European countries are not equal vis-à-vis uh, -vis the uh, financial possibilities to even sustain these type of policies uh, over the next few months and to the extent um, to which this will just create more debt, uh, more deficit and more problems uh, in, in the months ahead. So let's move on now and focus on the EU response. The European Commission has presented a SURE program, and this program is worth 100 billion euros, and it will support workers and self-employed around Europe. 
it will represent an extra layer of protection on top of the different national layers. So, Raymond, how should SOAR be designed in order to complement effectively country efforts? Well, the first thing I would like to say is that um, this, is a, this is a good idea and um, I'm happy to share this conversation with Laszlo because I know he has been trying to propose something like that for a long time, at the time when he was a commissioner. And sometimes you need a crisis uh, for these, to, to these ideas to, to go through. Uh, the, in terms of the design, I think it's, it's very important that uh, it's a measure which is not targeted on a particular country, but instead is targeted on the problem. So in other words, the, um, uh, the kind of uh, income support measure should be proportional to, in this case, would be the size of unemployment or the proportion of people who are on short-time work. So it should be seen as a complement to a particular problem which may indeed have different dimensions in different countries, but is rather problem-targeted rather than country-targeted. So I think that's, that's very important because it's, it's a way to make sure that it's it's perceived as, as being fair, as, as a kind of fair uh, system for all countries. The second is that I, I hope it will, um, it will not be just, uh, uh, I mean, some people say it will be very, very transitory. I hope it will be a system which will last even after this crisis, whenever it comes to an end, in the sense that it's a facility which may be activating when there is a when there is a recession. So I hope that uh, it's just not an ad hoc measure, but rather it will become a more structural feature of the European system. And finally, uh, the funding. Uh, it's important to to care about the funding. I had not fully understood the way it's going to be funded, but uh, it seems um, that uh, what would be useful is to use a similar funding to what is done for the uh, uh, reconstruction fund, which is being discussed uh, today uh, uh, by the European Council. In other words, some interesting formula which is based on the EU budget and uh, where there is some sort of uh, um, collective participation in the funding. Uh, I, I wouldn't use the term eurobonds or anything like that because I know it's very controversial, but some collective participation in the funding with a disbursement that depends on the the size of the problem. So, Laszlo, do you want to react to that, considering your experience? Are you happy with this, uh, with how this sounds, and and with the Commission proposal? Yes. First of all, I agree that this is um, a very positive move, but I would also stress um, the problem of the timing, because um, any safety net um, can only be functional if it's already in place before the bad uh, events uh, are happening. And the previous commission, led by Jean-Claude Juncker, had five years to develop these safety nets because all the analysis, all the arguments uh, were already there. And they were not repairing um, the EU economic architecture in the so-called good times, when um, the economy was in a good shape. And now that uh, the crisis is here, uh, a, a major storm. Uh, this is now the time when um, the new leadership has to improvise uh, with new tools. I think it also should be mentioned that uh, contrary to Juncker, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, as soon as uh, she became uh, designated 
commission president and then a president-elect, she already introduced the concept of the unemployment reinsurance. So this became a promise already last year. However, what we see now in the form of this shore instrument is not exactly unemployment reinsurance because the money would not go to the unemployed. The money in the form of loans would go to support people whose jobs can be preserved or saved, but not to the unemployed. So in a way, uh, supporting the unemployment uh, funds of the member state uh, remains um, uh, under the competence of the member states, at, at least for the time uh, being. Now, uh, one more point about the volume, because uh, um, I was quite critical about Juncker, but uh, at least they opened up the discussion in the uh, this uh, in, in the newly proposed uh, multi-annual financial framework the seven year long eu budget for um, specific stabilization instruments so uh, these proposals were tiny and not very well calibrated but at least they launched a discussion about the need to install in the eu budget little tools that support stabilization when the economy uh, goes into a recession and stabilization of investment, uh, for example. And now those tiny tools uh, look like uh, very uh, modest and uh, a little bit uh, laughable. Um, but now the point is to scale them up and, uh, and find the right uh, uh, direction. And I think it's very important to ensure that these uh, stabilization instruments are directed uh, towards the labor market and to fight against unemployment more directly than what was assumed in the previous years under Juncker. Okay, Amadine, we, we've talked about social Europe for a number of years, and now, now there's a moment to prove that those uh, words mean something. So do you think this SURE program, it's, uh, it's, it's delivering on the expectations of on a social response on EU level? Well, yes and no. Yes, a very tiny little bit and no to a large extent. Um, so let me explain. Well, the objective of SURE is to provide an additional layer of protection of financial support and funding um, to national um, social policies or socioeconomic policies. In that sense, it can only be welcomed. Uh, but um, this shore instrument can only be a quick fix. It cannot provide uh, uh, even uh, in the medium term, not to talk about the long term, um, the stabilization um, that is needed for most European countries. And um, from a political point of view, I would even argue that there is a danger um, that sure becomes a, a kind of fig leaf uh, for those member states uh, which do not want to invest more in common responses, in common financial instruments, such as a genuine uh, European unemployment reinsurance scheme, um, to then say, well, we've done sure, we have that, and um, that's sufficient, whereas we know it's not. And uh, if you look at the conclusions of the Eurogroup uh, from the 10th of April, uh, a number of um, decision makers, especially from the Netherlands and elsewhere, have made clear that show was only meant to be very temporary, was uh, 
to be ended uh, in a few months and thus uh, could not be transformed in a, in a more uh, long-term sustainable instrument. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, very problematic. After the meeting of the Eurogroup um, two weeks ago, uh, some members of the Eurogroup have made clear that this instrument was only um, to be temporary, that it should be ended in a few months. And, and uh, we know that, um, well, that is problematic for once. And then uh, a second concern is that the resources uh, devoted to show could be exhausted uh, in, uh, in a very short period of time, uh, as uh, some member states ha have very large needs. There is something that I, that I want to ask you, uh, the three of you, uh, perhaps about, and it's uh, how to avoid a major aggravation in cross-country divergence. So we've seen the previous crisis affecting uh, uh, European member states quite differently in terms of social terms. And even if this crisis is, uh, this virus is affecting everyone, I guess the effect is going to be different. And I guess Europe should have something to say in terms of how to prevent further uh, differentiating in EU member states. Uh, Raymond, do you want to start with that? Yes. Uh, thank you, Carlos, for asking <laughs> what such a difficult question. But, uh, well, I would like to say that uh, the to, in order to avoid uh, this aggravation of the divergences which we have seen over the past several years and certainly after the, the global financial crisis, uh, the, the next uh, few months are going to be crucial. So all the things that um, the European Council is discussing now, most of them have to do with, uh, would, would only be activated uh, as from January of next year within the next budgetary period. But uh, until then, uh, the, uh, the divergences may, 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 uh, may aggravate so much that uh, it may be too late to undo them. And so we need to think, if, if you want to address the divergences, it looks very structural as a process, but actually in the next few months, in a very short period of time, we may see uh, an incredible uh, catastrophic aggravation of the divergences, which is why uh, I think it's very important that uh, the European Central Bank uh, provides uh, further uh, instruments and further support. The, at the European level, there was some decision concerning the EMS, which is the, the rescue fund. Uh, but uh, the stigmatization of this fund is such that uh, I'm not sure that countries will willingly um, access to, to the EMS. Instead, it seems uh, perhaps more appropriate to ensure adequate support by, by the ECB. And another dimension concerning the divergence has to do the management, with the management of debt. Uh, one thing which is uh, clear uh, from, from this crisis is that countries will emerge from it with a, a, a very significant increase in public indebtedness, probably in the order of 15 to 20 percentage points of GDP, unknown uh, in, in recent years, and so uh, certainly from a very high level already. And so I, I think we need to, Europe will have to think of devices in order to, how to handle that, uh, because those most, in, most indebted 
may, may, uh, may actually face difficult times in converging towards the others as a result. I have some ideas about that, but maybe you can leave it to another chat. <laughs> <laughs> Amandine, are you concerned about seeing uh, more differences inside Europe between Europeans due to this uh, crisis? Yes, absolutely. We said earlier that not all um, European countries are equal in the face of this new uh, crisis. Uh, and of course, uh, some countries depart uh, from a situation where they have endured uh, 10 years uh, of uh, first recession, then muddling through um, saving policies. Uh, and in this regard, uh, it's quite clear that um, the pandemic has revealed the, all the flaws of the neoliberal uh, policies, which have been implemented across the board in public services. Um, but beyond that, and to go, come back to your question about what we would need to prevent further divergence, I think uh, that's something we should definitely be uh, wary of. And um, what we need is a paradigmatic change uh, in the coordination um, and beyond of uh, socioeconomic policy in Europe. And here we clearly have a, a political deadlock with um, some decision makers who want to preserve the status quo as much as possible. Uh, if we look at what has been on the table so far, these are solutions uh, at the margins which um, do not really touch uh, what the EU has been doing so far and which, uh, on the contrary, uses um, with a little bit more flexibility, the instruments which we already have. So the European Stability Mechanism, um, the, the uh, EIB, uh, and um, the only very small novelty is indeed uh, sure. Um, but that will not be enough to prevent uh, further divergence. What we would need, um, and I echo what has just been said before, is... Um, a new instrument or a set of new instruments which can fix the problem of debt. Uh, as long as we have countries uh, with huge levels of debts, uh, which depend on other creditor countries and, and, uh, and financial markets and so on, with no um, more common instruments, we'll be in trouble. Laszlo, are you concerned about uh, seeing a growing gap between uh, Europeans, yes. depending on where, where they live, uh, due to this uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis? Absolutely. And I think uh, regarding this question, the comparison with the previous crisis is very helpful. Because in the previous crisis, the divergence was driven at two levels. One is the market and the other one is the policies. And on the market level, the problem was what we call the fiscal, uh, sorry, the financial fragmentation. And in order to avoid financial fragmentation this time, indeed, there is a need uh, for not only using the ESM, but to have uh, absolute security against financial fragmentation, we would need uh, some form of mutualization. Um, people call it Eurobond or Corona bond. It can be temporary, but the point is that some further step would be needed in this uh, direction. And then the issue with the policies, which drove divergence last time, was uh, the pro-cyclical fiscal austerity. This might be avoided this time, um, especially because Paolo Gentiloni, who is the uh, economic and uh, financial uh, commissioner uh, today, he already launched a review of uh, the fiscal uh, framework, especially what concerns the fiscal 
criteria in the Stability and Growth uh, Pact. Now, we need to know that um, you know, the Commission responded to the new recession simply by giving up this uh, strong fiscal discipline, but nobody knows how long it lasts and what comes after. And I think it would be very, very important that while we concentrate on these anti-crisis measures, these uh, new rules which would establish more reasonable uh, fiscal governance framework in the European Union would be developed because that would also help ensuring that the short-term survival is not uh, followed by a new uh, period of uh, uh, divergent developments and potential polarization and disintegration. Okay, uh, we're coming to an end, but I want to play a little game with you, if I may. And it is about projecting ourselves into, let's say, January 2021. So six months, a bit more than six months from now. And I want to ask each of you to tell me one policy, one instrument, one decision that you would like to see on the EU level back then, because you consider it particularly important. Uh, so... Uh, if you could tell me just uh, something that you would really like to see at the EU level in six months' time, and, and please uh, say it to me in, uh, let's say, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. <laughs> Raymond, do you want to play the game? <laughs> okay. Well, the, the decision I would like to, to see is um, a commitment uh, which, without any doubt, uh, gives total certainty to markets that uh, Europe, and in particular the ECB, will not accept risk premium going uh, be, uh, above a certain level. And therefore, a commitment to avoid uh, financial fragmentation in Europe. Thank you. Amandine, do you have anything in mind? Yeah, well, I have uh, something which may be a big dream very far away from today's reality, but uh, what I'd like uh, to... Let's dream. Let's yeah. dream. Let's dream together. I... I, I think um, what I'd like to see one day is a European fund uh, of investment in public services. Uh, I think that's absolutely key. Um, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has shown that not all societies are protected equally. So, of course, it's particularly acute um, at the moment as far as uh, healthcare is concerned. Um, but that concerns also um, long-term care, and that concerns education, that concerns research. Um, I think that if we want to look ahead um, in a progressive perspectives, in a positive perspectives for European societies, uh, we need um, to stimulate uh, investment across the board in, in Europe rather than, uh, rather than implementing policies of savings and cuts in those areas. Laszlo, let's uh, dream a bit. If I need to dream um, beyond what my colleagues uh, were suggesting, I would uh, highlight uh, a possibility or a, or a need for the European Union to go seriously into equity investment in order to prevent large-scale asset uh, stripping um, in this coming period when there's going to be a symmetrical recession um, while some others in the world economy have uh, some more cash and li liquidity and in a way the integrity of uh, the European economy 
and the European social model would be at risk. And partly it's a legislative and budgetary question, but to some extent it's also an issue of ownership, who owns the assets of, uh, of Europe. And um, I think the European Union will also need to move into this direction. Thank you. I think we are coming to an end, and I want to thank today's contributors for uh, joining us. Uh, Raymond Torres, Laszlo Andor, Amandine Crespi, Uh, thank you for your contribution. Please stay safe and healthy. Thanks a lot, Arroz, and it was a pleasure to talk to Lazo and, and Amandine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the interesting discussion. Okay, this was all for now. Uh, Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days will be over and we better be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is slowly emerging. Stay tuned.